Welcome to the Declaration Podcasts. Declaration is a festival exploring health and human rights that took place for the first time this year at the CCA in Glasgow from the 3rd to the 6th of March. The festival had 30 events, each one exploring an article in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Declaration is led by the Mental Health Foundation, NHS Health Scotland, the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland and the Centre for Health Policy at the University of Strathclyde. For more information, visit declarationfest.com. This podcast is from Article 28, the right to a social and international order. Thank you very much then, and welcome um, to this session on Article 28 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which of course comes towards the end of it, there only are 30 articles, and it says everyone is entitled to a social and international order in which the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration can be fully realised. So it's quite a sort of abstract um, provision in a way, but the idea of a social and international order, which in some way guarantees to us or tries to guarantee to us our rights under the declaration, um, is enshrined within the declaration itself, um, which of course leads to um, interesting um, um, conversations around the plan of the current UK government um, to repeal um, the, the, the Human Rights Act, which, which incorporates the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law and to, um, and to have instead a UK Bill of Rights. It has to, say, it has to be said that that um, plan of the UK government's is moving rather slowly. It's turning out to be a very complicated matter because the devolution legislation in Scotland in Wales and particularly in Northern Ireland, incorporates um, references to the Human Rights Act and to the, the, the European Declaration of Human Rights in a way that it makes it quite difficult to disentangle the British government from that. But there are elements in the Conservative Party which just want out of it um, and to have a British Bill of Rights instead. So how does that sit with this um, um, Article 28 of the UN Declaration, um, which says that we um, should have these rights guaranteed by a social and international um, order. So welcome to this session, which will last for about an hour, partly because one of our, sp our speakers um, has to be away at five o'clock for, for a train um, back down south. Um, and I'd like you to welcome our speakers. I'm Joyce McMillan, by the way. I'm, I'm a, a columnist and the theatre critic for The Scotsman. Um, and I've been involved in, in campaigning for human rights um, 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 in various different contexts for many years and I'm also interestingly in this context since we have a, a, a speaker from Amnesty I'm also a judge on an award at the Edinburgh Fringe which brings together these two kind of preoccupations of mine, theatre um, and human rights, uh, the Amnesty um, Freedom of Expression Award which is awarded every year to a fringe production which, um, which um, uh, gives a voice to the voiceless or which, which, um, which um, really makes a huge contribution to freedom of expression so it's a great um, pleasure Pleasure to be involved with that award, and um, and um, it's um, great that we can welcome a speaker from Amnesty today. So please welcome our two speakers. Um, on on the far right there is is Naomi, my far right, your far right, is uh, <laughs> Naomi McCollin, who's the program director for Amnesty in Scotland. Um, and next to me here um, is Dr. Iris Elliott, who is the head of um, research and policy at the Mental Health Foundation, which is one of the main sponsors um, of this event because of course this event is about um, how do does this network of human rights, this pattern of human rights contribution co contribute to human health and well-being. Um, so I'm going to ask um, both of our speakers to 
to kind of open up this discussion about what's happening with this proposal um, in the UK and whether our, as the topic of the, the, the session says, is the Human Rights Act safe? Um, and then we can, um, um, because there are not too many of us here, I hope we can all make a contribution um, to the discussion once our two opening speakers have um, have um, have introduced the topic to us. So um, I'm going to come to Naomi first. Thank you, Naomi. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting theme um, for the session on the social order and then linking it to the Human Rights Act because when countries sign up to various different uh, UN treaties, covenants on human rights, different declarations on human rights, it does feel very far away and very unconnected to people's ordinary lives. And something that um, the Human Rights Act does is that the UK government signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, before we had the Human Rights Act, people, in order to claim their human rights, if they felt that they were being infringed by the UK government, by a local authority, by the NHS, um, by any public body like that, would actually have to go to Strasbourg in order to um, uh, have their court case heard, which is, you know, there are certain people that in itself is a barrier to them. It's a very big, long and uh, prolonged process. A lot of people don't have the um, uh, the resources or the um, the kind of energy to go through all of that. So the Human Rights Act, which was brought in by uh, Labour government in um, 1998 and came into force in 2000, uh, meant that the European Convention on Human Rights uh, was justiciable. So this kind of like horrible legal term, which meant that people could go to court here in the UK, here in Scotland, um, and claim their human rights, and they could bring cases against um, ministers uh, against. Um, local authorities, against educational authorities, against the NHS when they felt that their human rights were being abused. So it's very, very important to, to try and bring um, the Human Rights Act back to it being about ordinary people being able to hold power to account when they feel that their human rights have been infringed. They've actually got a mechanism now that they can uh, take that those people in power to court. It also has a very important aspect to it as well, which is that public bodies and local authorities have to have human rights kind of mainstream through their processes and through what they do. Um, and this is one thing that, again, is arguable and, and there's, uh, is something that still, still needs to be realised in a lot of areas, although there is kind of examples of best practice. But local authorities and health boards and other public bodies should know what human rights are, they should have them in all of their practices, in their policies, in what they're doing. So actually, they shouldn't be inf infringing human rights. They shouldn't need to um, be taken to court in order to change their practices. They should already be, be realising it in the work that they do. Um, and so then we kind of come back to why it is we're in this situation where the um, uh, Conservative Party have these uh, proposals to scrap the Human Rights Act. Um, and a lot of it comes down to some of the big headline cases as to why people don't like human rights and why they think that this is um, or was a vote winner. And there are a couple of very high-profile cases, and it tends to come down to baddies, people that people don't like, so terror suspects and prisoners who've taken human rights um, cases. Um, sometimes they haven't even won them, but even taking those cases is seen as a negative thing. They shouldn't even be able to, um, to take these cases. And of course, the vast majority of human rights cases that are taken are um, ordinary people holding their health board or their local authority to account for things. And that doesn't make the front page of the Daily Mail or of the Sun. Um, a lot of the cases 
cases are um, decided outside of court. They actually come to a settlement with the local authority. So it's not very interesting. It's not very exciting. It has a massive impact for the vast majority of people, but people don't really know about it because of the the kind of selection bias there is in, in the cases that you actually hear about. So there is more and more this kind of narrative around a bad people are using the human rights act and we we should stop that so it really challenges the idea of universality that human rights are for all of us including people that we don't like very much they also have human rights too but another thing that the um, uh, UK government, and again, not all of them, there are, there are plenty of um, Conservative Party members and um, uh, politicians who are very against repeal of the Act. Um, but on the proposals that we have so far, they've tried to um, position this as about um, the, the British, the, the, whether it's the state or it's the people, against those terrible Europeans telling us what to do. So it's getting very, very kind of mashed up in the whole um, idea about the... EU referendum as well and you'll have people like Michael Gove saying in his um, speech as to why he thinks we should leave the EU for example, um, oh you know it's stopping us from deporting criminals Um, and he knows full well because he's the minister in charge of this area that that is the Council of Europe which is a separate institution to the European Union but it doesn't really matter because in most people's minds these things all just kind of get mashed together and it's about someone else telling us what to do and it's it's a real um, it's just a really kind of annoying thing that they've been able to frame it in this way because actually what the Human Rights Act does is put power into our hands. It's about us being able to hold the government to account, not about um, us and the government against the the Europeans or against the judiciary or whatever. So they've done a very good kind of um, PR trick on it there by by getting people to realise that um, uh, or to to believe that it's, it's us against them when in fact it's actually us against <laughs> against the government. So whenever you have um, a government who have got proposals to actually bring back more power to themselves, to take that power away from the judiciary, which is just one mechanism that we have for holding the government to account, uh, we should be very, very concerned about that. Um, and concerned in general, but also concerned for specific groups of people who they're clearly trying to go after. And it will be foreign nationals who they're trying to deport. Um, It will be, you know, a lot of the cases that have come up recently um, around human rights have been those who've been taking the government to court over the bedroom tax. And a lot of those people have been people with disabilities or who are carers for those with disabilities who've said that the bedroom tax is is unfair because it doesn't take into account their um, personal circumstances. They need an extra room for carers to come in to look after people. A case that's going to court at the moment is of a woman with severe disabilities and has a bed that needs to be able to move in um, a certain way to get her out of bed Uh, and so her and her husband sleep in separate rooms because the, the bed that she has is so big. So we've weirdly got the, um, uh, again, kind of conservative government who, you know, doesn't like uh, intervention in people's lives actually getting into people's bedrooms and, find, and finding out how it is that people are sleeping in separate rooms or separate beds. Um, and it, it, we shouldn't be um, in, that, in that kind of realm. And a lot of the politicians and the um, uh, things that are coming out are around um, uh, just making sure that they can get their policies through, get their laws through, even um, if they are abu- abusing people. 
people's human rights. So we need to really turn this this argument around on them. Um, and as well as the, the impact that it's having on people within this country, there are international ramifications for this as well. And we've already had people throughout Europe saying if the UK government either withdraws from the European Convention, and they say that they won't, but it's certainly disrupting the relationship and it's undermining um, the uh, convention, the European Convention and also the European Court. And there are people um, in other parts of Europe where this is the only mechanism that they have. So, for example, people who are um, families of those who were killed in the Beslan massacres um, in the Chechen Republic of the um, uh, Russian Federation are taking the Russian government to court over that because uh, they believe that the Russian authorities, um, A, didn't prevent it happening when they had intelligence that it was going to happen, and then they were massively heavy-handed when they went in there and actually caused more deaths because they went in with flamethrowers um, and various other things. Now, obviously, if you're in Russia, you're not going to get very far um, in, in their court system. And so the European court is actually the only avenue that some people have in certain countries to get redress. Um, and already some of the families who were involved in that court case have spoken out against the, um, uh, the conversation, the debate that's happening in the UK because it, it, it strengthens Putin's arm. And they've said that, you know, if you pull out of this or if you um, undermine the European court, it will allow our president to say, well, if the UK are doing it, then we don't have to abide by this um, either. So there are ripple effects beyond beyond our um, shores um, as well. But as um, uh, Joyce has said, the Scottish Parliament and all the devolved nations actually um, uh, are going to be quite a big um, legal block to it being repealed. Um, and it's not just about kind of the legal block to it. I think it's also important when the consultation does come out and when we start having these debates in Scotland, um, that it is also people within Scotland start speaking out themselves, whether representing organisations or as individuals. Because something that is being um, said already by Dominic Raab, who's a minister um, in the Justice Department, which is, oh, this is just about the SNP trying to make a stand against Westminster and trying to dismiss it that way, and has actually said, actually, people in Scotland agree that we should repeal the Human Rights Act and agree that we should have a British Bill of Rights, which is particularly laughable. But it is because he feels that he can say that because he will see it through, try to um, frame this within party political terms, which is why it's so important that we do start talking as... Um, organisations and as individuals that this is about our rights and you're trying to take away our legislation that enables us to actually hold you to account um, and not to try and get this kind of taking away into either party political terms or into the whole anti-European rhetoric that's going on at the moment too. Thank you very much, Naomi. Shall we give her a Iris. So I don't need to say any of that, which is fantastic. Um, I mean, maybe if I sort of say a bit about our, our thinking within the Mental Health Foundation as a, a UK-wide organisation um, from the point of view of our campaign. So we're a member of the Human Rights Alliance, which is the um, English equivalent of a, the Human Rights Consortium up here. Um, and I suppose whenever this um, was clearly a manifesto ask of um, the, the Tory party and then they got elected, we kind of were from that period on then we've been really trying to think about well how do, you, do we defend the Human Rights Act um, and 
part of the conversation is really exactly what you're sort of saying about it. We need to get stories about why the Human Rights Act is really important to people in terms of how they've actually used it themselves. And for us in the, in the Mental Health Foundation to be really clear about all the ways in which it's protected um, the human rights of people with mental health issues. And it's been really fundamentally important, particularly for people who are at the really hard ends of um, mental health care in terms of people who are detained or having uh, treatment um, forced on them, um, but also for people who are in hospital voluntarily and, and to make sure that their human rights are being, being protected too. Um, one of the things we've done is um, made a submission from Mental Health, Scot Mental Health Foundation in Scotland to the Scottish Parliament's um, inquiry around human rights and in that, that kind of lists basically all the ways in which the Human Rights Act have been really important for people with mental health issues. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going for that, mm. you've, made, you've made the case, I'm persuaded. Um, so I think that's, that's really important that we kind of understand what those stories are and share those stories and um, put those stories there in terms of wanting to know why is the media not covering those kind of really important stories for people, but also in terms of us when the, the public consultation comes out, you know, responding to that. I mean, obviously organisations will do that as well, but it's also really powerful if, if people speak to um, truth to power it, by, by taking part in that, that consultation as well. Um, the other thing we've been doing is looking at what's happening across the UK and where we think the strongest protection is for the Human Rights Act. So, I mean, it's been really interesting following the, the conversations in, in Scotland and the idea of the, the Civil Convention, which is basically if, if Westminster is doing something that will have a significant impact on Scotland, they need to, to consult with the, the Scottish Government and whether or not that... And particularly because I think it's been put into statutory force after the Smith Commission, so that 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 idea is, is going to have greater force um, when when that goes through. So is that one protection? So I think we're really interested, and we're really interested, I think, as well, because the Scottish Parliament is taking such a strong Scottish government is taking such a strong line on the Human Rights Act. That's obviously really important. And then the other thing, as um, Naomi sort of said as well, is that it's it's integral to the the devolution agreement. So this is an issue in terms of the the whole devolution agenda in in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And how do we ensure that the um, the Scottish Parliament, that's not going to be a problem, but the Welsh Assembly and the Northern Irish Assembly are also signed to Westminster. You know, this is actually part of our devolution agreement. You can't just get away with you know getting rid of the Human Rights Act. We actually think maybe the strongest argument at the moment, and, and um, we'll see how that goes, is the Belfast Agreement, because the Belfast Agreement is an international treaty because it involves the Irish government as well as the UK government. And so part of what we've been doing is talking to um, allies in Northern Ireland and, and in the Republic as well to sort of say, like, you know, what are you thinking? Are we ready to kind of move on that? And... I think there's part of that conversation that really needs to happen because we've, like our, our signings from people in, in, in Ireland, although the Irish government did initially sort of come out quite strongly and people who particularly who were involved in the Belfast Agreement in 98 um, are really concerned that this is going to affect the work that's been done there. That doesn't feel like there's the same groundswell of organising that needs to happen, I think, for, for us to have a really strong voice from, from Ireland. Um, and I think in Northern Ireland as well, I mean, I know Amnesty are... are um, on, on their game about this, but we also need to look at um, the fact that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission has literally got 10 members of staff now, so there's a bit of kind of like, you sort of think, well, well there's people there, but actually they're really under-resourced and underfunded. Um, so I suppose where we're coming from is just almost that kind of um, preparatory work of a campaign and making sure that as much as possible we talk to people and say your personal stories or your you know your arguments your engagement in the public consultation is really really important and then al aligning ourselves as as people organizations who are really committed to the human rights act we all 
speak relatively collectively with one voice. Um, the other thing that's, that's interesting is that the, um, there's a, a group within the European Parliament who, who commissioned uh, Doughty Chambers to give a legal opinion about the um, British government getting rid of the, the Human Rights Act and that was um, Martina Anderson who's the, the Sinn Féin MEP in Northern Ireland um, was part of launching that in the last couple of weeks so I mean again I mean it's almost a bit like we're all gathering our forces mm -hmm. ready where we're all kind of primed or whatever so I thought that was kind of interesting I mean it almost feeds into what you're sort of saying as well like people in Europe are really concerned that this is happening mm -hmm. and people are like almost using whatever power or positioning that they have to try and line up um, to defend the Human Rights Act. So so that would that would be something that would be really interesting for me in terms of hearing what people's ideas are yeah. about how we how we campaign around it. Um, um, Iris, um, this may be a, an impossible question to answer, but in your field of mental health, how many times a year, roughly? I mean, is it like hundreds or tens or, you know, just a few or... Are people using the human rights legislation um, to to assert their rights, you know, in, in relation to to mental health? I mean, is, are we talking about a lot of cases every year or just a, yeah. a handful? I mean, I couldn't say to you how many cases every year. I mean, what we've got in our submission is basically the different issues that yeah. cases have successfully been taken on. I think it's almost because there's something that's triggered within public services when people mm. mention the Human Rights yes. Act. I mean, I think it's almost like they know that they should be doing um, yeah. a better job in terms of yeah. providing human rights-based services. Yeah. So that, even if people don't necessarily take a case or take right. a formal action, yeah. if they just start to mention human rights, yeah. that's, that's sort of the word we get from people who are service users, that that's almost enough for people to sort of start yes. realising they so need it's, to behave it's, better. It has the, even if it's just a few people who actually end up taking a case, it has a, a huge kind of demonstrative effect yeah. because people don't want to be sucked into a, a legal action that makes it look as if they're abusing people's human rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, I suppose right from the start of the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, it has had that kind of declaratory effect. You know that 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 that. that it's, it's at least as much about sort of demonstrating that this is how governments should conduct themselves and this is how the international community should conduct itself as it is about, as it is about the actual cases that take place yeah. um, under it. And I think that's one of the things with, with human rights. For all that, I mean, this is, this is a government policy to um, repeal the, the Human Rights Act. You know, they do not... I think the UK does not like to be internationally embarrassed, so the people mm. do not want to be... Um, get that kind of reputation that they are anti-human rights and so one of the other areas that we're, we're looking at is the, the UK is going to be reviewed on its performance on the, the UN Disability Convention in, in 2017 so this is the year where they kind of basically get a list of issues about like what we're going to particularly focus on when we um, review the, the, the UK government and so, the, I mean, the UN Committee are are looking at this, just going, oh, well, OK, well, we'll see you in 2017, but this year you're talking about actually repealing one of the, the main domestic protections mm. that yeah. disabled people have, and that, you know, obviously people with mental health problems would say this, but lots of people with physical and sensory yeah. and learning disabilities would say the Human Rights, is really, rights Act is really important yeah. for them. Well, there's a UN Commissioner has already intervened on some of the cuts in disability benefits and things, yeah. isn't there? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So they, I mean, they, they are, you know, when you look at the detail of them, they do seem extremely hard to defend in terms of the kind of gen overall justice and, 
and reasonableness of them. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of them seem very, very dodgy, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things with the, the UN Disability Convention. There's kind of like the overarching convention that the yeah. government has to report on every few years, but there's also what's called the optional protocol, and that's where individuals can take cases. And the UK is actually the first country in the world where a case has been taken <laughs> under the Disability Convention, and it is around, it's on the cost. So yeah. we understand that we're going to hear that. I think mm-hmm. the Disability Committee is meeting quite soon, and we're, yeah. we understand we're going to hear quite soon about their decision on that. Yeah. Yeah, which would be fantastic if we get a good result. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to turn to the audience. I mean, it is quite an interesting subject, I think, if you're looking at it from a Scottish point of view at the moment, because, of course, we've just been through the whole process of our own referendum where there was much chucking about of the idea of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that at the end of the Second World War, when people signed up to the United Nations and to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, people quite, you know, I mean, not universally across the world, but everyone who signed up to that had reached the point of saying sovereignty matters less than these fundamental human rights do. So we will give up some of our sovereignty to the international bodies that are going to um, uphold and supervise these, or allegedly going to uphold and supervise these human rights. Um, and yet, you know, here we are, how many years on? Nearly 70, actually, you know, 65, 70 years on from that historic moment. And we still um, have this um, residual feeling that it's kind of not right for the international community to be poking its nose into Britain's disability legislation and all that um, stuff. So I, d- I don't know whether people in the audience have any direct experience of this or would like to ask a question about it or have any thoughts about it. Oh. Total silence. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, just on the issue of the the uh, British Bill of Rights in uh-huh. relation to our current rights, is there actually any draft as to what what is being offered? No. So no. it's just it's just stepping into the void in terms of what yeah. might actually transpire there. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think you don't you don't feel that we're going to come out of, if such a thing was to occur, that we would come out of it yeah. benefited. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think the, the bill of, idea of a Bill of Rights is, is an interesting one. Um, so we don't know what's in it, but there has been this sort of thing of like, whatever you have in the Human Rights Act will get transposed into this Bill of Rights. But I suppose one of the points we would make is that's a much more rigid set of rights than if you have a, something like a Human Rights Act where you're always interpreting that and updating it through through mm-hmm. case law so it's much more dynamic and all those sort of unforeseen situations in which you need to interpret human rights, the courts at least have that mm-hmm. that role, whereas a Bill of Rights will be, you know, a Bill of Rights um, and, I, and I think as well, we had a Bill of Rights process in Northern Ireland as part of the um, the Belfast Agreement and and my reflection on that is it really depends what's the process. If we get a British Bill of Rights, what's the mm-hmm. process actually going to be? Now, what happened in Northern Ireland is we had loads of process and we still did have a Bill of Rights. And we're, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll still be um, celebrating 20 years since since the, the Belfast Agreement. So, but but there's a very, you know, they there was a very particular process they went through. And I mean, globally, Bill of Rights are, there are something that, you know, people do develop, like South Africa Mm -hmm. has got one as well. Um, So that would be my question around the Bill of Rights. What process is it going to be? What's the content? And how are they going to manage to keep it up to date? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, our our kind of 
analysis of it. Uh, we've been waiting a long time for this consultation and for a draft Bill of Rights and uh, things have moved from kind of 18 months to two years ago when Chris Grayling was um, Justice Minister and had a paper out which was, you know, very very concerning to, to anyone um, who kind of worked in the sector. Some things they were talking about leaving the European Convention, they were talking about restricting certain people's rights um, on various different bases. So that was, you know, quite shocking at the time. And and as time gone on, because it was so badly received by um, the legal establishment and, and other um, NGOs, there's been a massive rollback. And now with um, Michael Gove in position, he gave uh, evidence to a Lords Committee recently in which he was just saying, oh, it will be exactly the same as the Human Rights Act. And oh, you know, it's just a bit of a gloss. It's just a bit of a tweaking. We're just going to be doing a, bit, a few reforms. Um, and our kind of still analysis would be that um, the context within which this is happening is so negative um, and is so much about kind of uh, taking power away from the judiciary and to restricting certain people's rights, we don't think that anything will see a greater protection. It will only be a dilution of rights because of the context that's happening, and it's very much within the Westminster bubble as well. If we could have a very open debate about making the Human Rights Act better, then that would be fantastic, and we would love to engage with that. But realistically, that's just not where we are. Um, it's something it, we're certainly in a different place in Scotland. The human rights environment up here is so so different. We've got a first minister committing to having um, uh, adhering to more international obligations we've got a Scottish National Action Plan on human rights, we're, go we're going through a very different trajectory up here um, and it's a very, very different conversation here than is happening at Westminster so in that context we don't think we'll get anything better um, it would be great if we could have that discussion about having something better but I don't think it's realistic A lot of the issues are quite difficult though, I mean, I mean was it right of the European Court Court to say that, that the European Court of Justice to say that, that Britain had to give the vote to prisoners, which was one of the most controversial mm. um, um, statements, or at least to some prisoners, or at least we're not allowed to have a blanket yeah. ban. Um, what about the Scottish Government's current um, anti sectarian songs legislation, mm. which clearly infringes quite strongly on the right of freedom of speech, whatever you think of those songs and, and their sort of hate based. Um, um, lyrics and all the rest of it nonetheless, you know, um, if you take freedom of speech seriously, you can't be banning people from saying or singing things just because you don't like them um, you know, um, um, I mean, there are quite a lot of quite difficult issues mm. around freedom of expression and human rights and people's justiciable rights, um, which are not that easy to resolve. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone here who has any sympathy with the view that we shouldn't really be taking any snash from Strasbourg about, about <laughs> the rights we give to prisoners in UK prisons, for instance. Nope. <laughs> Nope, they're all look. They've all now got a militant face saying we don't really want Strasbourg intervening in our laws. <laughs> what do people think? Somebody must be thinking something. I don't have an issue with whoever pipes up in, 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 in a sense because I think that I think that uh, it's, rights are a nonsense if they're if they're selective. If we if we if we don't apply them. Universally, universally, in, yeah. in that spirit, then then they're not annoyed. I think because then, then, then through time you can you can tweak out a particular sub subsection of a population and say, okay, well you don't you you you, you, you don't, don't have rights, these yeah. rights mm. so yeah. therefore you you no longer are counted. And whether that's whether that's prisoners, 
uh, or whether that's disabled people or whether that's whatever. Yeah. You know, there's a, we use the word dilution earlier, you know, there's, there's a dilution that occurs over... Yeah, I, I do think that's been one of the most worrying things about some of the rhetoric that the present government comes out with, particularly when they're in front of their party conference, that they quite clearly make it seem as if they think these basic human rights are conditional mm. on people's good behaviour. Mm -hmm. And the whole point about this is that they're not conditional. Mm -hmm. There is an article that says everybody's got duties as well as rights, but it doesn't say you can't have these rights if you don't fulfil somebody's definition of your duties. It just says, you know, you should behave as if you've got duties as well as rights. But it's not, it doesn't say, and if you don't, we'll take your rights away. It, it's, it's quite clear that these are universal rights and they're not conditional on anybody's conduct. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think that's something that you really have to watch out for with politicians. When you hear them talking as if these rights are conditional on something, mm. like never having committed a crime or, you know, whatever. Um, then, then they're up to up to no good in terms of in terms of the original intention of this this um, declaration. And I think we really have to watch out um, for that. Anyone else? I was just thinking there, just in terms of that point that I don't mean this is a kind of blanket answer, but I feel like, of course, every every kind of personal action, the cause and effect of how they respond within society, within the environment, is also a kind of um, what's that word? It, it's that kind of cause and effect of, you know, if someone isn't following the, the rules, the, the right moral behaviours, then their rights are removed from them. But then what led them to make those, to make a decision or to, for those actions to have happened in the first place, in a way, you know, that, that may have been um, very much about um, a, a, a disempowerment from a state or a disempowerment from a kind of decision, if that makes sense, that might yeah. have caused that action, and then and then they're, they're they're punished even further within a kind of a moral system for that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, any state that's got a legal system is saying if you do this, this and this, like if you go around murdering people, then you might be put in prison. You'll be mm -hmm. deprived of your right to freedom of movement, mm -hmm. which is a huge thing. And I mean, even if it was quite comfortable in prison, it's still a huge thing to be under lock and key and not have your, your freedom to go about. Um, 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 so, of course, there are circumstances in which people who really violate social norms can have rights removed. But the fact that somebody's in prison doesn't mean they've got no rights. Not at all. It's just that one specific right has been removed as a punishment. Mm. And that's quite different from saying that all these rights are conditional on people being good citizens or hard-working families. Mm. Mm. And, 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 yeah, whatever Maybe. the, you know, who who are these good people as well? Like, when yeah. the yeah. Universal Declaration was um, written, when the European Convention was written, they were written by... Um, upper-class white men you know they weren't thinking of women they weren't thinking of um, certain minorities some of the cases that are taken at the moment are by trans people when when this was written they were certainly not being thought of in this so yeah. this this need for um, a human rights act which is dynamic which responds to how um, you know a country and a society and a civilization actually yeah. progresses over time is, is really really important you know yeah. they um, you know the British state even after they had signed 
signed the Universal Declaration and the European Convention were still sterilising gay men. You know, it's, it is a negotiation over time. And, you know, it's not to say that we're in a perfect state now. Yes, of course, we've got human rights issues happening in this country. And it's, it's a constant kind of uh, a battle and a, a struggle to, to realise those rights. And new social movements come up, come up and say that, you know, they have been oppressed and and, and then we learn as a society about, about that oppression and, and respond to it. Yeah. It's striking that the Declaration doesn't actually say anything about sexuality. It mm. says there should be no discrimination on any basis, any other... Uh, you know, on, on any other basis. I mean, it lists things like race and gender and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say anything about sexuality, and they've not been able, I don't think, to persuade some countries to put in a, a, a specific reference to sexuality, but it does have a kind of catch-all at the end of the yeah. sentence which says, or any other thing that yeah. people might be prejudiced <laughs> against you for, you know, which I suppose is something. Yeah. Um, but yes, of course, the focus on, on, for instance, issues of sexuality or transgender people mm-hmm. has, has really changed a lot in the, in the, in the time since this was since this was drafted. Um, um, and of course drafted by a lot of British lawyers. It's not mm. actually something that's been imposed on us by a foreign power, far from it. I mean, the Brits played a colossal role in the mm. drafting of both of these, um, mm. both the European and the, the UN declaration. Mm-hmm. Any more points from the audience? Any more thoughts? Anybody been on the rough end of a human rights abuse? Sure, you all have. <laughs> I've been abused in some of the contracts I've had to sign to get work. I've directly <laughs> removed, for instance, my my property rights over the stuff that I write and stuff like that. Um, anyone else? I was just going to add a point. Uh, I just sometimes I struggle with understanding what's the point of putting people in jail if there is no long-term goal. Like it's it seems to be like it's all about punishing, punishing, mm-hmm. punishing rather than trying to solve a problem. Because when a crime happens, clearly there is an underlying problem. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's due to you know, bad intention, but also there is a chance that there is an underlying problem that might accentuate this uh, behavior mm. that would lead to criminality. So the notion of like, deprive you of most rights and even like voting and things like that being dissociated further and further from society, risk society. Most big um, employers in the country won't employ you if you have a minor criminal, cr- criminal history, criminal. minor like, uh, offences. Yeah. So I just feel sometimes if we're kind of going further from, from this, is this the right way we should go? Maybe we should rethink about the prisons as places to rehab people rather than punish people in the sense. And mm. yeah. just... Well, the, the mm. Prime Minister, oddly, made a very liberal speech about that the other week. Yeah. I think he meant a word of it. I don't know. I don't know. There's, yeah, there's lots of different things coming out at different times, depending on, because, uh, yeah, yeah, some of the, the, you know, at one point they were going to ban books for prisoners, um, and then uh, Michael Gove overturned that. That in itself is just, I mean, I don't think that that um, got into being a human rights issue, but actually you could have a kind of r- access to information. Absolutely. Um, uh, cultural expression. Definitely, cultural. definitely. Um, but uh, again, it also kind of goes back to to that um, to that rehabilita- rehabilitation point. If you're cutting off people from <laughs> from mm. all types of taking part in cultural life yeah. or, or learning or education or something, then then yeah, you're not. I think it is. It's. I mean, it's much wider um, conversation around uh, you know the the purpose of prison and whether it's rehabilitation, but also the need for there to be some kind of redress for victims as well, um, and to to make sure that there is um, some kind of uh, punishment for 
particular crimes and I think that that's an important thing to, to keep in there too. Um, but when it comes to something like the um, prisoners voting ban, all that the European Court said is that you can't have a blanket ban and I think that when people who, who dislike the idea about um, prisoners voting, when they think about it, they're thinking of murderers and paedophiles and they should be able <laughs> to vote and actually you can still have that, you can still you know ban the worst of the worst, they can't vote but <coughs> maybe it's people on remand should be able to vote maybe it's people who are going to be getting out before people they will be out by the time the election yeah. happens or, or you know any other kind of category or prisoner that you can say yeah. um, make that, that arrangement for but the whole kind of like very um, emotional reaction to it that happened I mean David Cameron said that it made him sick to his stomach the idea of prisoners voting which again is just about trying to cast an, a, a group of people as just being completely beyond the pale and that they have no um, role to, to have in society anymore which yes I agree I don't think it's, it's helpful yeah. for their, their rehabilitation which is ridiculous when you think that some people in Britain are in prison for things like not paying for their television licence I mean if, you, if it goes far enough and you really can't pay you can end up in prison yeah. um, I just got any thoughts um, about this and, and, and one of the um I suppose one of the thoughts I was having around um, prisons is within mental health and mental health prevention, one of the things we talk about is like capturing people where they are. So we talk about health promoting schools, workplaces and actually prisons as well. Mm. And I mean, there's a lot of evidence about how <coughs> bad prison is for your mental health. And if people don't already have mental health problems going in, they often develop them while they're there. Um, and I was talking to a colleague recently where they've got a whole new initiative where actually they're, they're working with um, prisoners to, you know, build their capabilities so that when they actually go out from prison, they're almost like catalysts within their communities so that actually using the opportunity not only just to keep them mentally well, but actually give them that sort of sense of actually you can be a leader, given what you've learned about why you've come into prison mm -hmm. and, and your experience of being in prison. Give having them a, a bit chance to redeem. Yeah. Them. If you're not going to give them a chance to be part of society in some way, yeah. they will always feel... You know, there's no way that they can be mm -hmm. back, and they can because yeah. some of them might actually change, and they want to redeem themselves in one way or another. And yeah. you know, and I, I just feel like sometimes there's a lot of um, a lot of emphasis on punishment, and mm -hmm. rather than rehabilitation. And I mm -hmm. think there was uh, a recent, I'm not sure, I've read it in the news where the the percentage of reoffending is higher than the percentage of people who go out of prison mm -hmm. uh, not not reoffending, yeah. and I think that is, in a way, is a failure of the, the justice system. It is a failure. It, 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 it is very serious. Um, um, and I, I've got a little bit of experience of this just because in recent years in Scotland there have been a lot of theatre projects involving um, young offenders institutions mm -hmm. and prisons. And um, so I've had the privilege once or twice of going into prisons. I've been to Barlinia a couple of times and into the prison at Greenock, which is a short-term prison for women and a, a lifer's prison for men. It's very odd to sit in an audience of women that are going out in about six months and men who have been in prison for 20 years and are going to be in prison till they die, which is a very strange mixture of an audience um, indeed. But nonetheless, the chance for... Um, the chance for um, people particularly to take part in making a show, it, it, completely transformative. I mean, interviewing some of the men that were involved in the, the shows that have been done with, uh, in conjunction with the Citizens Theatre at Barlini, um, it's just fantastic. I mean, Barlini is a short-stay prison now, so they, all these men have a hope of going out and changing their lives. But if you, 
don't do something while they're in there to help them to imagine a different life for themselves, you know, through reading, through education, through getting qualifications or through, you know, taking part in some kind of creative activity, then obviously they're not going to do that. And the other thing is that I think one thing we learned in the Scottish referendum was that if you get a group of voters who are in an institution, and obviously you don't want to equate our schools and colleges with, with institutions, but nonetheless, one of the reasons why the 16 and 17-year-old voters made a good contribution to the referendum debate was because they could get um, information through being at school. You know, they're, they're in a better position than somebody who's 20 and has not had the vote while they were at school because, because you know, they, they could have debates at school, they could get a lot of information from their teachers, they could, you know, they, they had a, a forum, a place in which to discuss it. And actually, particularly if you're talking about short-stay prisoners, um, you know, then prisons could be the same, could be a great place. I mean, my father was in the army in the Second World War and got his entire political education, which was pretty much like being in prison a lot of the time. And they had things called forces parliaments, where they, they you know, had big political discussions and decided all to vote Labour in 1945. And, um, and, and, you know, so when you've got people together in an institution, it's actually a great forum for political discussion, even if it is a prison, you know. I think this will be a very interesting test of, um, of the Scottish Government and of the next First Minister, whoever that might be, um, is, is what is done with prisoner voting as well. Because, yeah. again, it's, it's a very good example of people saying, like, oh, it's, it's Europe telling us what to do. Uh, this judgment came out years ago, and it's still not being enacted, no, not so actually implemented. we don't actually aren't compelled to do it. But um, now that the Scottish government do have power over the franchise and have given it to 16-year-olds for the election that's coming up now, will they take the opportunity to actually change things, and will they change it in a progressive mm -hmm. way? It'll be very interesting to yeah. see if they see it as as politically damaging or not to do so. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Any other thoughts from people? Just thinking of what you said there, Joyce, in terms of like, because my, my first reaction is like, how do people know about this? Like, how, what are those modes of communication getting into those groups, whether it be people who are disconnected from a community or whether there are people that are already involved? Like, I suppose, yeah, it's a big question to us, but like, how, how best to disseminate the information? Mm -mm. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> a big one. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, Amnesty are running a campaign to save the Human Rights Act, but again, we're a usual suspect. Like, of course, we're a human rights organisation, so we will defend human rights legislation. And one of the things we're really trying to do is work with lots of organisations, those that are working with mental health, with children, with women, mm -hmm. um, LGBT organisations, to say, this impacts on you, mm -hmm. and you tell us these case studies, these stories of how the Human Rights Act has um, been used, and then use that as the, using different networks to, to get this out to basically um, but yeah I mean getting getting kind of good news stories out we found is really really difficult like you know uh, the case of Abacadada was front page news for weeks we yeah. have got lots and lots of really compelling case studies around where the Human Rights Act has been used for disabled people for children and we can't get them in the press <laughs> like it's quite hard you know yeah. we can use social media we um, use all these different networks we've got with different organisations to get it out but you know it's it's hard to get these kind of mm -hmm. oh this is where our legislation worked really well it's you know it's not mm -hmm. as compelling or, or newsy mm -hmm. as oh my god look at this this horrendous case and even when you have got cases like the bedroom tax cases at the moment which I think are really exciting cases and it's, it's kind of demonstrating how you can actually um, affect change against a, a very unpopular government policy in, uh, when, when they're written up in the news they often don't mention human rights at all so I don't think people like know that 
that there's that connection yeah. there. Yeah, um, they say it was a court case, yeah. but they don't they don't point out the yeah, role that human yeah. rights legislation. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, any ideas you have, <laughs> then please give it <laughs> give us it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in terms of have you had that kind of engagement with the National Union of Journalists or what your view mm. would be about that? I mean, we've done yeah. a lot of stuff around reporting mental health. Not part yeah. of that's just about yeah. not sensationalising and actually not yeah. talking about methods yeah. of suicide, all those yeah. kinds of things yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know if that's... Uh, yeah, well, actually, what, the, what will get yeah, human the, rights into it. The NUJ in Scotland was one of the first, I think, bits of the NUJ to have a code on reporting mental health, you know, not sensationalising it and all that. And it's actually a very useful set of guidelines. But the trouble with journalism is that... Um, 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 I mean, there's, there's issues around the BBC which are actually very complicated, and the BBC does do some quite good coverage of these things, but not in its highest profile news bulletins and things, which tend to follow an agenda set by the press. The press is all under economic pressure, and the one thing that everybody in journalism or everybody that's an editor of a, a, a publication um, um, in this, uh, out there in the commercial sort of um, chill winds knows is that fear sells. Mm. And hope doesn't. Yeah. You know, if you've got a holding saying everything's fine, people are people are getting their human rights because of the wonderful Human Rights Act. And go, well, that's nice. But they don't buy the paper if they say, "Be very afraid, someone's after your children." <laughs> you know, people rush in there and buy the damn thing to find out what they should be very afraid of. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid that this is what's going on mm. fundamentally. Um, but you know, if, if you can stir up fear and hatred, you can sell more newspapers in a declining market than you. Can can if you're stirring up hope and, and positivity, which is sad, but it seems to be so psychologically true. Um, what is sad, I think, is that even the publications which are not entirely, even the, the media organisations which are not entirely commercial, are following that agenda as well. I mean, I don't think we would even be having this EU referendum if people had stood up to the lies that a lot of the the, 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 the press were telling about the EU right at the start and saying, look, this is all rubbish. Mm. You know, these, these, these migrants from the EU are not damaging our society, they're contributing massively to it. And if all the politicians had just stood together and said, we're not having this, it's just lies, you know, but they don't. They run scared of it. Oh, people don't like EU migrants, so we better do something about it instead of explaining to them, mm. you know, how, 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 um, how they're being misled about what's really going on. So, you know... I don't know what you can do about that. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, the, the BBC does constantly disappoint me because it should be being a counterbalance, and it's just not a really not in its high-profile news bulletins and the things that people generally pick up on. Mm. Although, if you sit and listen to the World Service late at night, you can hear a lot, a lot, both about the abuse of human rights worldwide and about the fantastic role of human rights activism and legislation. I mean, for instance, just in this last few days, we haven't had an absolutely huge um, violation of human rights in Turkey, where the government's just marched in. It's like, it's like if the British government had marched in and taken over the Guardian, because they, they're bigger, actually, because it's the, absolutely the biggest newspaper. It's like more like the Times, but politically it's more like the Guardian. Mm -hmm. they, they've marched in and taken over the, the biggest newspaper in the country because they don't like it criticising the government. Mm -hmm. They sacked all the journalists, taken over the offices, and they're now publishing some kind of um, uh, government blat instead of this newspaper. And, you know, that this is happening in a country which is applying to be in the EU. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank goodness we've got some idea of a framework of human rights. Otherwise, where would we be putting our foot in saying that that shouldn't happen? It's not that we can stop it from happening entirely, but at least we have a clear idea that it shouldn't happen. And that's what people mean by 
the international order, I guess. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, like it's kind of important to remember when the the UK government is saying that you know we don't want to be told to what to do um, by judges. In all of these cases, it's the UK state are the defendants. So when they lose, it's the UK state, whether that's mm-hmm. local authority yeah. or whether it's government ministers or the Home Office or whoever. They're all on the losing side, and what they're saying is that we don't want to lose anymore. So let's change the legislation, yes. <laughs> which is in itself terrifying. Like it shouldn't. It, we need to have these checks and balances because yeah. again even if you have a, a completely benevolent um uh, uh government which um i wouldn't say that we had it still doesn't mean that further down the line you're going to have someone very, very reactionary as well so we need to have these frameworks yeah. to make sure that exactly we can we exactly because you, you need to watch the powers that you're giving because you don't know who in the future mm-hmm. is going to have those powers mm-hmm. one last comment or a last couple of comments from the audience any more thoughts just lady at the back was just saying there just made me think of social media and the, the, the small but significant yeah. role that you can make in social like yeah. the conversation threads mm-hmm. are very worth reading sometimes because mm-hmm. you can learn something and you can yeah. share something so I know that Liberty have got um, an easy-to-find page which with their case studies on. Mm-hmm. I confess I've never looked for the case studies for Amnesty, but I'm guessing you have one. Yeah. And, you know, one thing all of us can do is next time you read a Daily Mail headline that's mm-hmm. so objectionable, is simply post a link to something which demonstrates yeah. yeah. the yeah. opposite yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah And definitely. then people do, they just go, what's that? You know, everyone's like, what's that? Especially if you don't put what is it about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Keep them guessing. Yeah. <laughs> so they click on it. Before you know it, everyone's clicked on it and thought, oh, there's that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's just my little way of uh, yes. yeah. when I read something utterly objectionable is to just think, oh, yeah. I'll just post that other bloody thing that yeah. says the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely, that's a huge and growing thing. And we saw the power of it in the Scottish referendum yeah. where the, the media, conventional media, were overwhelmingly. Uh, no, but somehow we managed to get to forty-five percent. Yes, uh, a, a lot through people exchanging yeah. ideas on so, on social media. Definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there, are, but and I was also quite inspired by by what Naomi just said about trying to work through organisations, you know, places where people are getting together, whether it's in organisations dealing with mental health, whether it's in organisations dealing with children, whether it's in organisations dealing with a specific issue like the bedroom tax, trying to get to people. You know, in all their collectives, and saying, "Look, this is where human rights legislation is important." You know, do you want to shift to a British Bill of Rights, or, or do you want to stand up and defend what we already have? Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I think doing it uh, yeah. kind of like local and community yeah. level is really, really helpful as well. Yeah. So we have kind of amnesty groups around the country who often do kind of street stores or whatever. Because yeah. some of these things are things that you need to have a conversation about. Yeah. I think social media is great, but sometimes if it's just you know 140 characters, it might be quite yeah. difficult. Sometimes yeah. it is having a big long conversation with yeah, someone to, to get them to change their mind yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Letting, yeah. letting people ask questions that they, they yeah. just you know we don't have the answers do we all of us no. yeah. sometimes yeah. you just got to put your hand up and look a bit stupid yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well these international structures are very complicated and people don't oh, yeah. learn much about them i mean even at school they don't learn enough about the difference between the council of europe which is the thing that was set up in called all the countries of Europe, you know, to, to defend the declaration, basically to defend the European 
um, Declaration of Human Rights and then quite different from the EU which of course doesn't help matters by calling its, its main decision making body of government ministers the European Council which is quite <laughs> hard to distinguish for a lay person from the Council of Europe but it's actually quite quite different um, and then there are other structures like the kind of UN sub thing for Europe which is called the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe and does some fantastic work yeah. actually in, in, in defending human rights and defusing conflicts across you know the whole sort of European zone um, so you know um, the, the, the international structures are quite complicated but they're worth understanding because the, the intention behind them is generally pretty sound I would say and, um, and um, people, people I think should be, you know, schools could do more to educate people about that dimension of our politics I think yeah. anyway I'm conscious that Iris has to be away very shortly, have either of you got anything you'd like to say before you? Um, I mean I suppose one of the things that sort of struck me from a previous session I was in was um, where somebody was sort of saying actually the language that we use to describe human rights is not necessarily something that people kind of connect yeah. with or resonate with and, yeah. and actually they were sort of saying that in the terms of the, you know, yeah. when you talk about health and this health, how people understand actually what are just yeah. other types of issues for them and I think that's one of the, the challenges we have if, if we're I, I absolutely agree that in terms of going through community networks and community organisations but giving people a space to actually describe what are the issues for them and then create their own language so it actually is something that is very much from their heart and from their experience mm. rather than something that feels like it's an interpretation yeah. of kind of a legal kind of instrument yeah. or whatever yeah. you know that yeah. it really it grows from them and they can connect to it very deeply and then they will be strong advocates I do I do definitely believe that yeah. Yeah. definitely definitely and yeah just to get involved in the campaign so you said Amnesty's um, doing it Liberty's doing it but um, lots of kind of non-usual suspects are doing it as well so definitely to kind of carry forward the campaign and when the consultation I suspect the consultation won't come out out until after the EU referendum but I, I might be wrong <laughs> um, but when it does come out again just getting people to respond to that as much as possible so that um, they can't just say like oh this is just amnesty doing what they do it's, it's better if it comes from other people too. Yeah and when politicians say that they're in favour of human rights or like David Cameron did the other week in favour of the rehabilitation of, of prisoners and so on hold them to it yeah. you know because because Politicians often say these things without meaning to do much about them, but the fact that they've said one said it said it is a hostage to fortune, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so holding politicians to account is. That's why they delete it off their website. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They often delete these things yeah. off their websites when they wish they hadn't said them. But we well, can. Against the voting of prisoners, is that what they delete? No. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, no, I think they they still they still sick to their stomachs about oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if David Cameron goes on like this, he might have to change his mind. Right, listen, I'm going to wind up the, the formal bit of this session now because um, Iris really has to be away. But I want you to, to give a bit of thought to the organisations that have sponsored this fantastic declaration festival over the last um, four days because I think it's been um, a fantastic initiative and really, really interesting. It's NHS Health Scotland, uh, the Mental Health Foundation for which Iris works, um, the Health and Social Care Alliance and the Centre for Health Policy at Strathclyde University. Shall we give them all a round of applause just for backing this? So thank you so much to Naomi from, from Amnesty and to Iris from the Mental Health Foundation. Um, thank you. <laughs>